I'm Jeff Cohen. If you're a fan of Saturday to Shabbos, the last name Meyerfeld may sound familiar. That's because we interviewed Rabbi Moshe Meyerfeld, the husband of today's guest. Liat co-founded Key with Moshe, an organization committed to promoting Jewish life for young professionals living in New York. But there's a whole lot more to her story, so let's get started. Liat, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored and excited to be here. And this is exciting for us also because we had your husband and now we're going to hear uh, what you have to say about Key. But we want to start first with getting to know you a little bit. We like to begin that way with our guests so that our listeners understand the background of the people that we're talking to. So give us a sense of where you were born and raised. Okay, so I'm originally from Connecticut, but we were always moving to Israel when I was younger. And I actually realized years later that history has a way of repeating itself. But anyway, my parents finally made Aliyah when I was 11. So I grew up in Netanya. I'm a beach girl, bleach blonde hair, tan complexion. Um, I went to school there, high school there, then spent two and a half years in the Israeli army in military intelligence. And then university in Jerusalem, I studied special education and also Jewish studies. Then I met Moshe, my husband, in my last year of university. We got married. We had three kids when we were living in Israel. And then we moved to London for two years, which became 20. I I always said all those years that I was going back to Israel. But now we're in New York, so Israel is still our dream. But we're in New York providing Jewish experiences for young professionals in the city. We have eight children. Three of them are married, three grandchildren. We're very blessed. So my job as the interviewer now is to unpack all these amazing things you just said, because in one minute you managed to get through like 30 years of your life. So I want to back up to a few of the things you said, because you took us from Connecticut to Israel to London to New York to grandkids. So I want to slow down for a moment and go through a few of these items, okay? Okay. If you think it's just 30 years, then it's good. I'm sounding young. (laughs) I want to just go back to this idea you said you always knew you were moving to Israel. So is this something that your parents, like from your youngest memory, you knew that that was the goal of the family to make it to Israel? Always. was always the goal. My mother's Israeli, and she married my father to move to New York for two years for him to get experience in business. And then those years kind of became 15, but all my childhood years, they always, everything was about moving to Israel. It was very funny, actually, every piece of furniture that they bought was in thinking, like, how would they use it when they moved to Israel? They already owned a home, so they knew exactly the dimensions. (laughs) I joke, they bought a piano. Literally, they chose the piano by the length of the piano. Nothing to do <laughs> with how it sounded because it needed to fit into a specific space. So Israel is, is my earliest memory. Okay, but you said your mother is Israeli, but your father is American? Yes. My father has a whole Saturday to Shabbat story of his own. Um, he passed away many years ago, but he grew up very, very secular. The only time he ever went to synagogue growing up was the day of his bar mitzvah. He went to a... I don't even know which synagogue in they lived in Great Neck and he went up to the Torah and then they went home to have I assume bagels but I think probably a lot of not kosher things as well for his bar mitzvah lunch but he was in the American army actually luckily between battles but when he was there the he was very inspired by the chaplain and he decided he wanted to become more observant and he went to Israel at the time there was nowhere to learn in the 60s for someone who was just beginning So I always say God has a funny way of making things work out for people. He went to Hebrew U and he sat next to 
a young woman who came from an observant family and he became part of her family and learned everything from them. That was his Saturday to Shabbat experience. And I kind of grew up always really with the, his excitement for constantly learning um, and growing and, and really with the love of, of Shabbat. So at the time that you come into the picture, you would describe your family as fully observant, both your mom and dad? Yes. Well, fully observant is probably relative, but yes, I did grow up. I grew up observant very much. Okay, so that would help like for our listeners to get a sense of what kinds of things your family was doing, because there's all these different levels on the spectrum of what it means to be religious. So what was going on within the home like in the earlier years that you can remember? So I realized I was very lucky in that my parents had a very, I think, a home that was really at the balance of, of all worlds. It was observance with a real love of everything that we were doing. Specifically, like I said, Shabbat for my father was, when Shabbat came in, there was like this just extra happiness in our, in our home, but really always still with one foot in the, in the outside world. And we interacted always with all different types of people, um, I think what was unique was we also lived in communities that had different types of people. Nowadays, people tend to live in much more specific communities. But I grew up really with different types of people from different levels of observance or not observant at all. I always say the kids in our neighborhood on Friday nights, they would end up in our home. <laughs> and I would, um, I would just, you know, sit outside and, sh- and schmooze with them. I never thought this was special, this idea of having friends from different backgrounds, probably until I went to the army. And in the army, I was actually in a very secular unit. There are units that are more integrated with different types of people. But for the most part, the people that I served with, many of them said that I was the first Shabbat observant person that they had ever met. I think in the beginning, they really looked at me very strangely, like to see, would I speak like them? Would I behave like them? They, it, was, it was such an anomaly. Um, and then I, after the army, I ended up in, in Jerusalem, and I met a lot of people there who had never spoken to a secular person. And so I think for me, that's always a little bit of my, it's my dream really always to, to connect people, that the Jewish people should all feel united because we really are one and and people are people at the end of the day and we should really be able to connect with each other i just figured out why you and your husband are so good at kira by that last statement that you just made so (laughs) it's all coming together and making sense Uh, i want to just go back now to your family you said i think you were 11 you moved to israel so are you now in like what what americans would know as like a yeshiva type school in israel or are you in more of like a public type school what kind of education are you getting just before you get to the army well it's an israeli religious public school i guess it's a modern orthodox school it was a little bit streamed so most of the kids in my class came really from more observant homes i think the kids who were in this school but were more modern were in a separate class but again we were all we were all friends together, so but I would call it pretty much modern Orthodox. And then when you get to the time to go in the army, what did you specifically do during that time period? What was your role? So I served in military intelligence. I joke and say that I could tell you, but I have to kill you afterwards. Um, <laughs> so don't tell me. <laughs> no, there's too much to do. There's too much to do. But um, anybody in military intelligence, I think you signed 50 years of secrecy. But the truth is, is that the world is such a different place than it was. It was 1989 when I first enlisted. 
and we have Israel has peace with Jordan. Now with the Abram Accords, so much of the Middle East has different relationships with Israel at the time. Iran is is completely different. We've had you know two Gulf Wars. It's it's the world is such a different place that I doubt that I have very many secrets that would interest anybody at this point. Okay, so let's go to the other part of what you said about being in the army, the fact that most of the people you were surrounded with were not observant. And something I always think about when my family became observant and moved to a Jewish community, how much easier it is to be surrounded by people who are doing the same thing as you, keeping Shabbos, eating kosher, etc. So how hard was it to keep that faith inside of what you were personally doing when the people around you aren't observing it in the same way? So I think on the one hand, it was very hard. The base that I was on was really seeped in anti-religious views, I would say. There were a few hundred, probably thousand people on my base. And there were two big social get-togethers of, I want to say everybody, but as many people as possible. One of them was a unofficial but very large barbecue on Yom Kippur night, on Kol Nidre night. And the other one was on Seder night including pita and other such. And everything was done very with this anti-religious view. But what I realized years later was that really in order to plan a barbecue on Yom Kippur night, you have to know that it's Yom Kippur. So that's really the advantage of the secular Israelis is that whether people want to or not, there's always that intrinsic connection. I think that was one of the things that surprised me the most about Jews outside of Israel was that many people could just go through the year without knowing, you know, when specific Jewish holidays happened. That's, I think, the benefit of secular Israelis is that they are still always connected to Judaism, uh, whether people want to or not. So that was hard to not be part of a lot of those social events. But on the other hand, there was definitely people looking at me. And I had to always remember that and to stand up for what I believed in, even if I had any of my own doubts or weaknesses, maybe I didn't have the ability to turn back because I, I really was the face of orthodoxy for a lot of people. That's got to be a lot of pressure at that, at that young age. I think so. A lot of what you do raised observant is just also by rote. Like, I think there were certain things that never occurred to me not to do. It never occurred to me not to keep Shabbat. It never occurred to me, not that it didn't occur to me, it just was not wasn't a choice that I would have made. I think at times it was very difficult and I was not always as inspired, but everybody else always kept me in check. So that's what I had to do. It's good that that happened because I could see a scenario where somebody who maybe doesn't have as much internal strength, they, they make a friend in the army who's not religious, who says, you know what, just for these few years while you're in the army, like just chill out a little bit and you can always pick it up again when you come out of the army, become religious again, because they, they might understand what it would be like to actually go off the path and how hard or easy it might be to come back on. So did you, did you know other people who faced with that challenge maybe didn't have as good of an outcome as you did? I think that was true for a lot of people. I, I guess I was very blessed. There were definitely people who said to me things like what you have said. You know, you can chill out. You don't have to be so strict. But really, my, my true friends were the ones who always, you know, kind of even pushed me. And, so, you know, I don't know if it was always so halakhically correct. Like often people would say, oh, we'll bring you back things like they would. <laughs> go shopping on Shabbat morning and they'd say, oh, we'll bring you back things. I, I didn't fight against that so much. But as long as I kept to who I was, I had a lot more respect, I think, than 
people who gave it up. I'm wondering if you ever heard a story about someone who came into the army secular and ended up in a group that was like a lot of religious people and somehow got inspired and went had like the opposite happen. They became religious while they were in the army. I've been out of that world for a long time, but if I ever hear of anybody like that, I will send them your way, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> They'd make a great guess. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so let's continue with your story. So post-army, um, and you mentioned in, in your first couple of responses about what you studied and what you were looking to do. So just give us a little more detail about that. I went to Michala College for Women in Jerusalem, and I have a double degree in special education and also in Jewish studies, which is how this college worked for everybody. At first, I thought I was going into special education, and I did work in that field for one year. And I realized it, it wasn't for me. And I had an opportunity to teach in a new seminary that was opening for post-high school young women. And I just jumped at the opportunity, and I've been in Jewish education since then, really, both formal and informal. Got it. And so I mentioned in the intro that we have interviewed your husband. So he shared his version of how you came into his life, but I'd love to hear your version of how he came into yours. <laughs> so Moshe's three years younger than I am, and I was really already in the depths of my college experience post-Army, and Moshe had just finished high school very young and, you know, up for new experiences. And he was friendly with my sister. And we had a few different conversations when he, you know, he came to the house. And I don't know that I really ever thought anything of it until one day he just said to me, he said, well, if I was three years older, I would ask you out. And I said, well, if you were three years older, I'd probably say yes. And then, you know, <laughs> that little bit of flirting led it to, you know, he said, okay, maybe I should just ask you out anyway. And that was... That was the beginning of it all. <laughs> Very nice. I'm glad your stories are consistent. So if any of our listeners go back and listen to his episode, they'll know the stories reconcile and match. So that's that's good to hear. Okay, good. So where did you think you were, you thought you'd stay in Israel once the relationship got more serious and you were talking about marriage? That was my condition. I would only marry anyone who wanted to live in Israel. That's my heart and soul. It wasn't just the place that I was living. It was a huge part of my identity. And, and Moshe fell in love with Israel as well when he was there. And we really... We had no intention of leaving. We had many friends um, who in their first years of marriage were there and then moved to different parts of the world. And, you know, we said goodbye to them painfully, but we never had any intention of leaving. And even when the opportunity to move to London came about, I was emphatic that we were not going anywhere. <laughs> I don't know why still, but I said yes to a pilot trip. And even when I said yes, I told them, you know, I'm really just coming as a, for me, it's just touring. I'm coming touring. You're paying for me to just have a free trip to London. And they said, yes, that's fine. We just want you to come and see it. And I guess they knew <laughs> 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 because we spent, I guess, less than a week there. And on the flight back to Israel, we were just over the Israeli coast you could see like just so much part of the land. And I turned to Moshe and, you know, we looked at each other and we were both crying and we just both realized that we were going back to Israel in order to pack and leave. But again, I think it was really the, the meeting people that week, the young people that we met who were so disconnected from anything that had to do with being Jewish, not even observant, just <laughs> feeling Jewish, our connection to Israel, I was just, it really, 
it shook me to the core. And I knew that I couldn't just go back to my life in Israel and that I had to be part of trying to provide something different for people. But at the time that you went to London, were either of you working in Kirov in any way? Like what made you get this opportunity? Why were they looking at the two of you as a couple to potentially take this role? Like what in your backgrounds told them you could be good at this job? The people that thought of us for the job knew that we were both teaching actually post high school kids that had grown up observant. Some of them were still observant. Some of them were struggling much more. I don't know. I I look at Moshe. Moshe really worked with really a tough group of kids, really kids who were at the edge of society, dealing with alcohol and drug abuse. And I think people saw what what I saw, that he really had a, a genuine love of people, regardless of where they were, and a true desire to connect them to their deepest selves. And I think that's really what's needed for anybody in education, but certainly in dealing with people with non-observant backgrounds is you have to be able to see the person for who they are, the whole person. And so when you go back to Israel with the intention of packing your bags and going to London, were you telling yourselves we're going to do this for three years, five years and come back to Israel? Or it was an open-ended thing? You didn't even know how long you'd stay there? Two years. It was just two years. (laughs) I didn't think it would be anything more. I really thought, you know, you do your bit and then you leave. But I guess I realized it doesn't really work that way. (laughs) How long were you there in total? We were in London for 20 years. Wow, so you just added a zero to the two, not much of a difference. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Even those 20 years, they kind of inched forward. We thought, oh, okay, in three years, this child is finishing elementary school. That will be a good time to leave. Oh, in two years, we'll finish this program, and that will be a good time to leave. But different things just kept popping up, and we were very blessed to be part of a growing team of really incredible educators and we really felt like we were part of something incredible of a real shift in anglo jewry so you can't leave when you realize that you're really doing something incredible and so how were you getting the the young people involved in the organization how were you finding them and how were you getting them to come to a first thing to introduce them to what you had to offer so i think at that point that's when i realized i was older when I was no longer the person who was reaching out as a first contact to young people to get them to come. First of all, I think it's food. We use food a lot. Everybody loves food. So, you know, when you provide a lunch and learn, people I think first and foremost are there for lunch. And hopefully you're also providing a learning experience that people realize, wow, this is something I can really relate to. And so then they, keep coming back hopefully (laughs) i've interviewed other people who work in kirov and i've often asked this question that i want to ask to you as well which is what are the success measures is it if somebody marries a jewish person is it if they become religious is it if they just start to understand that they're jewish and start doing some of the holidays or is there no way to measure it in this quantifiable way when you have a success people always ask me for success stories so i have to say two things first of all is that i don't see anyone's journey except my own as my success. People often say, I made this person from, and I really don't believe that that is true of anyone. Everyone's connection with God is their own success. 
And the second thing is really what you've said is that I, I don't know what success is. I think that the only one who can judge that really is God. And I am, I'm inspired by all of my students. I say, you know, your podcast is called Saturday to Shabbat. For me, the most important aspect is the two. It's the journey. I just, I'm constantly amazed by being part of people's journey and how they're grappling with what it means to be Jewish and how they can incorporate Judaism into their lives. And really, that, that's what it means to be a Jew. And the word Israel means to struggle. So I feel very blessed to be able to be part of people's journey and to hopefully help them in that struggle. And so you said people always ask you for success stories. So even though it's their success and not yours, is there a story or two you want to share of just the interaction you had with someone and how their life changed while you were in London? <laughs> it's hard to measure success. I have students who are still on the entire range of the observance spectrum. Teachers, Rebbitsons, often it's the people who question it the most and who have the harshest debates who keep you up late at night with sometimes the most obvious God questions and sometimes the most random, how did you ever think of that question? But those people who are really, who you can see they're like fighting it so strongly are often the ones who they make it their own and then are able to share it with other people. You said that it was supposed to be two years in London. It became 20, but still I would think the plan was to come back to Israel but then again, I see you're doing the interview from New York. So there must have been another stop after that. Yeah. So I, I actually I'm reminded of a story. Our son, one of our sons, when he was maybe six years old, I think my husband came home from shul on Friday night and he came home on his own. And when he came in, our son Shimon, he was incredulous, like he couldn't believe it. He, he kept looking behind him. He said, is there really, did you not bring any guests? Is there no one coming? And she said, no, it's just us. We're having a special family meal tonight. And Shimon looked at him very, very innocently. And he said, are you trying to tell me that everyone in London has a place for Shabbos? <laughs> and we, I think I really took that almost as a, as a marching order of, you know, I don't know if I'll stop until I've done everything I can to help people find a place for Shabbos. How old was he when he said that? I think six. <laughs> it's so funny you're saying that because the first time my wife and I kept Shabbos, our, our first child was, I think he was only five. And he said to us at the end of Shabbos, we were like, what did you think? And we were expecting him to say, not too good because no TV, you can't play your video games, like all these, you can't drive anywhere, like all these no, no, no. And he said, this was my favorite day of my life with my parents. And it's just the way that kids have this innocent way of like summing up exactly what you're trying to do was like so beautiful and such a reminder that we were headed in the right direction. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the truth is, I, I actually love when people say they can't come because they're making their own Shabbos. And, and that's just amazing when people have really incorporated it into their lives and, and are not, so to speak, dependent on somebody else to, to make Shabbat for them. Right. Well, you're doing it for them at the beginning, but ultimately, if they can become independent and do it themselves, then you've done your job. Right. So we often have people who will come for a Shabbat dinner and they've never been to a Shabbat observant home before. I don't think anybody is ever purposely rude or inconsiderate 
but there are definitely guidelines that a person wouldn't necessarily know. So my first goal is really to make people feel at home because Shabbat really belongs to everyone. And we explain some ground rules kind of so that they know what to do. No one wants to feel like they don't belong. I think, you know, everyone wants to feel really like your son said, like this was my time with the people that I that I love. And I think especially with adults, though, when they come into these situations is that they are, depending how old they are, but experts in their own field where they feel very confident in their lives in most places that they go. And then they come into a Shabbat dinner and I can see the look in their eyes. They feel like a lost toddler, really. So that's really the first and maybe most important thing is for people to know kind of like what's going to happen. And I think for us, that was actually really a learning curve as well, because people asked us, why do you do this and why do you do that? And certainly when we first started as educators, we didn't have the answers to those questions. We had both grown up observant and took a lot of things really for granted. Um, so that was our first, uh, <laughs> our first job was to get those answers for ourselves so that we could explain them more fully to people. I'll never forget there was a time where Moshe was introducing the Shabbat meal to people and he said, right, we're all, you know, we're going to go wash before we eat challah. And there was one young woman who you could see the look of shock on her face. And she had thought that everybody had to go shower in order. <laughs> and, and she... <laughs> you so, could have done a nice practical joke right there. So, <laughs> so af since then, we're very careful to say we're going to go wash our hands so that people know, know what's happening. I have a funny story, actually, with also with another one of our, our children who, again, we teach them about the world and, and history, and, and maybe we overdo it sometimes. <laughs> we took a trip of young people from England to New York, actually, and... I had my children with me and I couldn't always be with the group. So I tended to take them. It was summer in Manhattan. It's boiling hot. I took them to museums. One time I remember specifically we were in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Met is huge. There were you know hundreds of people in the entrance and I turned around and our daughter Hadassah is missing. She's 10 years old. I can't see her anywhere. I'm holding on to younger kids. I had a stroller. I, I couldn't find her anywhere. I'm running around frantically. And I finally see her. She's standing next to the information booth and I run up to her and you know even before I had a chance I'm watching her and she's talking to people who are there on on the line for the information booth and then they walk away and I walked up to her finally and I said you know what are you doing here and she said you know I've been here so many times I can really tell people where to go and she is literally <laughs> giving people directions oh the Egyptian exhibit no problem walk straight walk here. she's showing people where to go so I, I realized maybe I'd overdone it a little bit but she'd oh, Hadassah had always been one to connect with people and one Friday night in our home a few people got up to leave the table and she said to she got up to go with them and they said to her they said you know maybe you should just stay at the table we're just you know we're going out for some fresh air and she said oh I'll, I'll come with you and they said, no, we're just, you know, we're just going out for, for some fresh air. And she looked at them very innocently and she said, I know what fresh air means. They were going out for a cigarette, <laughs> a smoke, and they rightly so probably didn't think it would be appropriate for that, her to join them. But she knew what they were doing and she also accepted them and really loved them for whoever, wherever they were holding. <laughs> Okay, so we were now going from the London time period into moving to New York. So as you were thinking about moving again, 
And I was asking you this before, did you think maybe you were going to go back to Israel? How did it end up being that New York was the next stop? All the years that we were in London, until the last few months, I was convinced we were going back to Israel. But then when we had to really think about where we wanted to go, also people a few years ago asked me where I would go when I moved back. And I said, I don't know, somewhere with young families. And they laughed. They said, oh, why would you want to live there? (laughs) (laughs) So I realized many years had passed. um, But with those years came a lot of experience. And... I think at the end of the day, we realized that we could take all of those experiences and still use them. And so instead of going back home to maybe our last stop, we decided to make another different stop in our journey and hopefully take a lot of the life experience and lessons that we learned to share with what is many ways a very different but very similar group of young people here in New York. Got it. And so we'd like to believe that all of our loyal listeners have already heard Rabbi Moshe Meyerfeld's episode. But for those who haven't and aren't familiar with the organization you started in New York City, can you tell us about it from from your perspective? So we originally came to New York to work for a certain organization and COVID hit just a few, um, maybe a year later. And the funding was hard to come by. And so that organization, I'd say self-dissolved really. And we again had to rethink what we were doing and where we were going. And maybe it was a sign that we should go to Israel, that we weren't meant to be here. And I think with signs like that, it's, it's the easiest way is to interpret them how we want to interpret them. Maybe people often say like, oh, if this happened, it must be a sign that I should do this. And I say to them the same thing that I said to myself then is that sometimes things happen and it's a sign for you to be stronger and say no. Not every opportunity that we're given is one that we're meant to take. And so there was a lot of soul searching then as well. And we decided that if we were in New York, maybe that was the sign that we should stay in New York. And we decided to start our own organization, which we named Key, spelled like we, K-I-I with the ideas of maybe the word key that we would be helping people unlock opportunities for themselves, that we would help people grapple with the key issues, the fundamental things in their lives, Um, and to maybe also be a key with a cue, a kind of a safe space for people in rushing waters of life. And so we're in a few years later, self-funding, We're very blessed to be able to continue what we're doing here. We've met thousands of of young Jews in New York. And I think what is different about the Jews of New York and the Jews of the United Kingdom is that in England, young people, for the most part, are still part of some kind of Jewish structure, whether they'd been to a Jewish elementary school or a Jewish youth movement or even it's just that their parents belong to a synagogue in order, you have to belong to a synagogue to have burial rights. So people were somewhat connected. And here we've really in New York met people who are not connected to their Judaism in any way. And maybe because of that, like you asked before, how do we find people? I think that's a little bit harder because, you know, if, I, if I've met somebody and I'll say to them, oh, well, you, you know, come next Friday night, bring a friend. 
And many of them will say to me, I don't have any Jewish friends to bring. And I think that's also something that has been a very special part of key is that people have created a Jewish social structure within the organization to really then have those Jewish friends to continue their their life journey with. Probably something else that's changed from your time with Aish in the UK was pre-smartphone era and the way that you would find people and advertise events and build a community was totally different in that time period versus probably what you have to do now. So what have you seen change as smartphones have come into the picture? So, well, social media is probably the biggest change a step further than just a smartphone in that people can access not just random information, but so many voices that are there giving over their opinions, some opinions more educated than others, but people are really bombarded constantly, interestingly, by choice. We're the ones who are constantly scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Um, So I think that's made it really challenging in that people sometimes feel like they found everything that they need already from social media, but on the other hand, more confused because there's so much there. I think with social media, there is so much constant noise in people's lives that it's definitely become harder for them to connect with what Shabbat has to offer. And so I also want to ask you about this idea of when someone gets inspired by what you're offering, comes to events, gets turned on by it, like the neshama comes alive, all that stuff happens. I'm picturing if I was in my 20s and I had come across your organization and then I told my parents about it, then they're completely secular, they would say, that's wonderful. Like, we love that you're exploring Judaism and meeting Jewish people and all that stuff. If it then got to another level where I was so into it that I was starting to think about taking on any level of Jewish observance, that might have turned off my parents at that point. And they would view it as, that's not how we raised you. That's not how we're living. Like, it's great that you're learning about holidays and you're learning about what Shabbos is, but we didn't think you were joining this organization to change your lifestyle. So do you get involved in, once you have a kid who's turned on by all this, what changes in the relationship with their family? Yes, very often. So I think the first thing to say is that we really want to make sure that people don't change who they are. I think often parents' big fear is that their child will try to become somebody else. And really, we know that every person's special soul that God gave them, it's who they are, their weaknesses and their strengths. Uh, I, I love the famous expression from a Hasidic Rebbe who used to say, oi, to a person who doesn't know their weaknesses because they don't know what they have to fix and change. But oi vavoy to a person who doesn't know their strength because they don't know the tools of their trade. Part of my goal always is to help people connect to who they really are to their strengths and for them to stay true to self all through their journey. I've been fortunate to be part of people's journey where they choose to give up their careers, for example, where they were very advanced in their professions, maybe singing careers or acting careers that wouldn't allow them to keep Shabbat and they chose Shabbat over their career. But the the real decision making in addition to that is really how to stay true to myself if I've given up one of the main ways I express myself. And, you know, some people choose semi-professional careers, some people don't, but the most important thing is for people to always be tapping into elements of self. And I think that when parents realize that that is what their child is doing, that we can, 
you know, help them maintain their relationship. And that is also a super important aspect of people, you know, honoring your parents. It's it's up there in the top 10. It's in the top five. So I think that when people feel like they have to change and they pull away from their families, they're also missing out on a, an exceptional gift that God has given them. You know, you were put into your family for a reason. And with all the wonderfulness and the struggles, you know, I'm, I'm both a child and a parent, so I know that from all directions. And it's true with siblings and extended family. But I think it's super important for people to, in as much as they maybe change their behavior, that they stay true to self and maybe connect even more deeply with self. And part of that is to stay also connected with your family. Yeah, and my parents actually, as much as they had trouble at the beginning, they really came around, particularly when they saw the community side and saw how my children were being raised and what they were part of and the education they were getting. They like came around because I think their initial focus was the praying and the religious pieces of it. They didn't understand the community side of it. Uh, so I think it's part of explaining to them up front a little bit more. Uh, you only get one shot when you're a kid who chooses to go on this path of how you deal with it with your family and you realize all the mistakes you make along the way. But in hindsight, I see now if I'd played up more of the community piece as opposed to these religious changes I was making, it would have been a less bumpy road in, during the early years. Yeah, I can imagine. But what we'd like to do really is I love to have people with their parents come for a Shabbat experience. That's always been positive, I think, when they also realize that my husband and I are really just normal people and we're not trying to kidnap their child into some kind of crazy mm -hmm. mind-altering cult. All parents want is for their kids to be happy. I hope always that it really just enhances their their relationships. Yeah, that's something actually my father said to me about a year or so ago. He finally admitted that, you know, at the beginning of this, I really struggled with what you were doing and what that meant about how your mom and I raised you. But now the way I see you, this is like the best version of you that I've ever seen. So he said there's something that's right about being on this path. He said, I like the way your family's operating. I like the choices that you're making. And so I think it must have something to do with being on this religious path. He really did like a complete 180 from how he felt about it at the beginning. Wow, that's that's amazing. The Thursday before lockdown, 2020? Anyway, the Thursday before lockdown in New York, we had a challah baking event in our home to connect with the idea of what challah means and why we make it part of Shabbat. Most young professionals from the city went home to their parents. And a few weeks later, I spoke to a mother, actually, and she said, I really have to thank you. She said, our daughter was at that event, and now we are both baking challah together every Thursday for Shabbat at home. And it has really become our together experience, and we're just loving to be able to do this and to have a Shabbat dinner. I think that's what it's all about is, you know, Shabbat is really that feeling of, uh, of exhale and knowing that all is good with the world, that I'm exactly where I'm meant to be. Whatever was supposed to be finished is finished. Anything that wasn't done will always be waiting <laughs> afterwards. And that I'm very blessed to be with amazing people around me who I love and who love me. It's really that feeling of connecting to the source and, and about coming home. And that's what we want people to feel, that they've come home where you're supposed to be. There was once a young woman who fell asleep on our couch 
after Friday night dinner. And she had actually been reading books to my kids. I think she fell asleep reading a book. And everybody left. And I'd even cleaned up afterwards. And I finally woke her up. And I offered her if she wanted to stay sleeping. But I didn't want her to wake in a start, you know, in the middle of the night. And she was so embarrassed. So embarrassed. But I was so happy because she felt at home. You talked a lot about Key and what you and your husband are doing. So what's on the horizon over the next two to three years? Where would you like to see Key grow to over time? So I would love for there to be more hubs across New York and maybe further than New York as well, where people can find their connection with Judaism in, in whatever way that is. Everybody's on their own journey and people connect with their Judaism in different ways. I think, again, social media is going to be huge in terms of connecting people. And I would really love for a lot of social media influencers to work together to create material that's there for people to even stumble across when they're not looking and to see, oh, wow, these are like incredible people who are connected to their Judaism. And, and it's something that maybe I should check out also. Right, and something tells me there'll be a branch in Israel at some point. That'll be your ticket back home. <laughs> I hope so. All right, so let's go into the lightning round to close out the interview. Are you ready? I hope so. I think so. <laughs> okay, first question. What would you tell someone who expresses interest in coming to their first key event, but they're like apprehensive about getting involved? I would say to people that come as you are, that you don't have to bring anything, you don't have to dress any differently, and that you will find people who are like-minded and so when you have people who are like first timers around your Shabbos table, what are some of the most common discussion topics that come up? Like, what are they asking you about at that first meal? So I want to say that it's about Shabbat, but I think it's not always about that. People use the opportunity to ask about everything that they had never asked about Judaism. So our Shabbat table has conversations, well, certainly recently ranging from abortion and Roe v. Wade to LGBTQ issues, probably relationships is the biggest questions that people have. Does Judaism have wisdom to give me with relationships? But also, what's the Jewish approach to the war in Russia, which I don't know that there's a specific Jewish approach, um, but, <laughs> but really it, it ranges incredibly. Got it. And last question, you mentioned that you like to use food as a way to draw people in. So what can someone expect to eat at your Shabbos table who just heard this interview and said, I'm going to go knock on their door and come next week? So again, my goal is for people to feel at home when they come. So we try not to serve maybe what are even traditional Shabbat foods that people wouldn't necessarily recognize if they had not been to Shabbat before. So we don't have chalent. We don't have potato kugel probably also because I don't know how to make them. But I do try to make a, we call them Shabbos potatoes. There's a special ingredient in them. Can't tell anybody, but those tend to bring people in. And really, I guess just, you know, quiches and foods that people would recognize, but hopefully with that added Shabbat element to make them especially delicious. Sounds good. It sounds very appetizing for those who are listening. So Leah, you are out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really been an incredible experience. And I look forward to hearing so many more of your interviews and people's journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. 
Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.